0: You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au I got something I want to talk about to you Just
1: a little communication It could help the situation
0: Welcome to another edition of Communication Mixdown. Hello, I'm John Langer. How many video conferencing calls have you been involved in since the pandemic lockdown? And what could an online video conferencing call have in common with a celebrity autobiography? This week's guest on Communication Mixdown has been pondering and writing on these very questions. She's Katja Lee. She teaches communication and media studies at the University of Western Australia and has a special research interest in issues to do with identity construction, self-presentation, and public performance. I talked to her by phone last week. Thank you very much for being on Communication Mixed Down, Katya. And I wanted to start with an article that you recently wrote in the conversation. Mm -hmm. You were looking at video conferencing on digital platforms like Zoom. And before we get into the specifics of what you were discussing in the article, I was wondering why you decided to write about video conferencing. I understand there's a bit of a backstory here.
2: (laughs) There is, there is. Um, Because I guess I mean, I'm like a lot of other people right now, and we're using video conferencing services in ways we haven't really done before, like not just for work, but for keeping in touch with friends and family these days. So it was actually over Easter, and I was catching up with some girlfriends over Zoom. We're having some wine, playing some games. And it wasn't a long call at all. But at the end of it, you know, when I logged off, I was like, I'm really exhausted. Like, I feel drained. And I started to think about it. And I'm like, why do I feel different? Why is this different than this face-to-face friendship? And um, I realized, well, it is different, right? It's, we've always had video conferencing as a way to stay in touch. But now it's our primary way of staying in touch. And it comes with different kinds of pressures for changing how we socialize.
0: That's the backstory. Let's get into the real yeah. story. <laughs> and, uh, um, you wrote this article in the conversation and you make a link. Be- being involved in video conferencing, you make the link with video conferencing and you make the link in relation to ideas about performance and something that's called persona studies. And I was interested to find out what persona studies was all about.
2: Yeah, um, persona studies is a really interesting field, We're pretty interdisciplinary because it, it just stretches really broad. And I mean, what it means is when we're studying personas, we're really looking at these these identities that people create, you, me, famous people. We create these identities as part of being public people, right, from moving into social situations, whether, and that social situation can be like talking to your kids, talking to your work colleagues, gaming online. There are all these ways in which we have to be social and public. And so we craft and perform these identities for those different situations, just like indeed Zoom, you know, when we go up on Zoom and we're talking to, to folks. And so, what, what, some of the things that we study in persona studies is looking at, you know, those different kinds of personas that people create for different situations, but also how different situations in different contexts might impact how you do that. So, things like Zoom and how technology or a relationship will shape that kind of persona
0: performance. In your article, you you actually do say that uh, per, the word persona comes from a Greek word, which means mask, or it's, it's it's related to the idea of an actor wearing a mask to depict a character. It, it, that's, that's part of the performative aspect of it.
2: Yeah, it is. And yet the word mask can be a little bit misleading if we think of mask as this like false front that we put on. We're not being false when we go out into public. We are just being ourselves, but we have to be ourselves differently in different situations. And so, we use the language of performance, but that doesn't mean we're actors and that it's false or fake. Uh, it has more to do with the kind of the, the history of the field and some some theorists and some of the language and analogies that they use. And they often talked about theater, and the different you know on stage, front of like being on stage versus backstage, and the different kinds of identities that you would use in those different situations and theater was that kind of metaphor that they brought in to, to talk about that experience of being different in different situations.
0: When you're speaking about this what it reminds me of, and I guess this is a bit of a cliche, but that Shakespeare, that Shakespeare quote, all the world's a stage and we're <laughs> merely players. It's not, it's not, it's not quite like that, is it? It's, it's, it's much more to do with the, the, the relation between yourself and the social environment.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's very true. And yet, I think Shakespeare was onto something of it. We are all players in this, this larger drama. The, the, the analogy is great, but it's not a perfect one, though.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, going, just going, going back into the uh, article, you, you say in the article, video conferencing radically changes the conditions under which we interact with others. And I was wondering what you were getting at when you wrote that.
2: So what I was getting at was just that that's a different context for which these personas are being, you know, produced. And I think the big change that comes from video conferencing is not just that we're doing so much more of it, but that in video conferencing, unlike face-to-face interactions, we can see ourselves, right? There's a default mechanism on a lot of these video conferencing, uh, like, like Zoom, the software that... You can see yourself. There's that little thumbnail of yourself, and so we can actually watch ourselves as we're performing our personas. We become, we're. we're, I call it a kind of self-surveillance. And so while that can be useful for you know setting yourself up within the frame and being aware of your lighting, it can also create this kind of stress on you to be watching yourself all the time and making these micro-adjustments. Or for some people might feel embarrassed by seeing themselves and awkward about it. And so I think it comes its a different context for interacting with people and watching ourselves do that can be exhausting. And that's what I identified in the end. Like that's why I was so exhausted after hanging out with my girlfriends for a couple hours was that sense of watching and changing myself as I yeah look
0: yeah look I can absolutely confirm mm-hmm. what you're saying because I I've also had quite a lot of zooming experience over the last couple of months with the pandemic and it oh. is something which you you're very aware of that little rectangle which you have your own image in mm-hmm. and your your eyes are always getting kind of dragged towards that <laughs> little image and you're sort of checking your hair and yeah, checking you you're checking your wrinkles and and, and it kinds. doesn't
2: mean that we're vain. It, we're not vain. We are aware on some level that we are being, you know, we're performing. We can see ourselves and we can we can see how we are ourselves in front of other people. And we don't often get that kind of experience. So my advice, as I said in the article, is, you know what, like, check that you're in the frame, the lighting's not terrible, and then just turn that little self view off so you don't have to be watching yourself all the time.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, I I, I want to continue with our discussion about persona, and uh, uh, your work as a researcher is directly involved in exploring issues of performance and the construction and management of public images. And you've recently published a book entitled Limelight, Canadian Women and the Rise of Celebrity Autobiography – I wanted to explore this a little bit more, because for me, this really does relate to uh, issues to do with performance and and also to do with uh, the persona studies that we were talking about earlier. Broadly, what was your book aiming to do, and how does it relate to persona studies?
2: Well, the book is looking at about 115 years of history of celebrity autobiography production, and really how these these texts or these life stories have changed over time, and the ways that they were used, the way that they are published, and the kind of image management uh, functions that they might serve. So, I mean, we're really familiar with the celebrity autobiography today as this tool that a public figure can use to manage their image. And that's changed, just, you know, how, how they've done that over time. And so that really relates to persona, because what we're talking about is that, that crafting of image, that cult, you know, careful, strategic management of image and celebrity autobiography is one of those tools.
0: I was also interested, uh, you, you specifically uh, look at Canadian women. Uh, what, was there a strategy behind that as well?
2: <laughs> well, I, I'm a Canadian and um, I, that's kind of like one of my fields is really focusing on pop culture in Canada. And so I was really mostly interested in, 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 in the gendered aspect of it because women have and still do experience same differently uh, than men there are different pressures on them and different kinds of identities that they're often encouraged to take up or reject in kind of crafting their public persona so that's really what kind of focused my research
0: and just give us an idea look we're in australia at the moment but uh, uh, give us a few names of people that you you looked at if 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 we would be familiar with those people
2: Some of the folks you might be familiar with uh, might be um, like, uh, well, modern day, you know, some of the the pop stars from today. So we're we're talking like Celine Dion and Shania Twain. Um, But I can even go, you know, much further back. Um, Margaret Trudeau, who was the wife of Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau and is the mother of the current Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau. She's written a couple of memoirs. I look at hers from the 70s to 80s, uh, to 2010, and then even going way, way back, uh, for those of you who might be familiar with uh, the book Anne of Green Gables, that author was also Canadian, and she wrote uh, a memoir. And I look at, at you know that all the way up to, to, to 2015.
0: Yeah, Anne of Ging- Green Gables, as I understand, was a very popular book in Australia at one point. Who, who is the, tell, tell us who the, who the author of that book was.
2: So Anne Green Gables was written by L.M. Montgomery, and uh, it was written in 1908, and it was a huge bestseller, internationally, enormous, Sweden, Japan, and uh, not surprisingly, Australia. I run into a lot of Australian fans of the the books and and the television series. I was at a conference in Prince Edward Island, which is the little island off the coast of Canada where the author is from. And I remember meeting Australians who had traveled all the way from Australia to the other side of the planet to attend this conference, not because they were academics, but because they were fans. Throughout the month of June, 3CR is running a station appeal.
1: We're asking you, the listener, to donate to keep the station going.
2: 3CR relies on the support of our listeners, but we know that many of you are doing it hard. So if you can't, we get it. But if you can, head to 3cr.org.au to make your tax-deductible donation to the 3CR Station Appeal.
0: You're with Communication Mixdown, and I'm talking with Katja Lee, who's discussing her new book, which is an investigation of celebrity autobiographical writing and how such writing connects to questions of self-presentation and the public performance of identity. Now, in the book, you discuss three distinct historical changes or shifts in the way that this celebrity autobiography was being written. Now, even though your book is focused on Canadian celebrities, I think, this is my view, I think that uh, these shifts that you're talking about are probably more widely applicable, if you like. How would you characterize these changes in autobiographical writing? You said you went back about 115 years. So what what were the differences between the three stages?
2: Um, what I was seeing in the differences between those stages is at the beginning of the 20th century, we're finding um, people writing about their lives, but they're really only writing about their professional lives, their public lives. They don't talk about their private life. And I thought that was really interesting. Uh, and I don't know if that was is just characteristic of women's memoirs at the time or if men were also really focused on their public lives and kept that part quiet. It'd be an interesting study to do. Hmm. But the other thing that you, you, difference that you get at that point in time is that a lot of these life stories aren't being published like in books that we're used to today. They were being published in magazines. And so that whole story would get serialized over the course of a few months. So that whole fan interaction or experience of reading a memoir would be totally different when you have to wait each month for the next installment and you lend the installments to your friends and then they lose them. Like you don't you don't hang on to it. It's not kind of like a souvenir the way sometimes they are today. Then starting um, around the 1930s, I started to see that people were talking more and more about their private lives. And that you also see what I thought was really interesting is that celebrities also start talking about how hard it is to be a celebrity, some of the kind of psychological implications, the burdens of being famous. And so you get this really growing dialogue about being open about the difficulty of being famous. And then that third stage is starting around in the nineteen nineties, and we characterize that period as memoir boom. And what that means is that there was just this huge explosion of interest. People loved reading memoirs. There were lots more being published by famous people, but also just by regular people. And so then I look at some of the trends that are happening in those books, and part you know, and what's happening today. And that's the
0: mm-hmm. period the the uh, the third period uh, t- tell us a little bit about the the third period which I guess is is the more contemporary what what sort of things were were being was it was it much, much more uh, sort of personalized in that sense uh, the, did it become much more uh, I guess a, a kind of psychological study of of the person's uh, development
2: it's certainly more intimate um, a more intimate revelations about psychological conditions, um, Mm -hmm. uh, images of of bodies, or, or, I mean, what I, I think the biggest shift or, you know, some of the bigger shifts that I saw, you know, that we're seeing in these books is that we've always had this story of becoming famous, right? That's always been part of the celebrity autobiography. But what we're seeing in the memoir boom text is that story of my private life is just as important as the story of becoming famous. And often it's actually more important that the story of the private life um, is the one where all the plot happens to be. And I think you probably would find that in the Australian text, too, is that the private life is this place where the obstacles must be overcome. And what you get is is a book written by somebody who claims to have survived those obstacles. They're on the other side of... The the drama, or potentially the trauma, or you know, um, psychological problem, or whatever it was, mm. firmly on that other side of that, and so being able to kind of talk about it retrospectively, as though they you know, they're all better now, and that comes with a whole bunch of really problematic discourses of, you know, you just pull yourself up by the bootstraps, sort your own problem out, and you'll be fine. Um, mm, there's a whole mm. bunch of kind of problems with that sense of having finally arrived at, you know, the real you. Mm. Which is a common phrase you might see. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Look, it's it's
0: it's it's very interesting. It, 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 the correspondence between what you're talking about, and and I suppose, look, i I use the term the neoliberal subject, and uh, yeah, yeah, the sort of idea that the individual is somehow responsible for their own well-being, their own psychological uh, condition, and so on. I, I think that's Absolutely. Re- really I- interesting.
2: That's the very language I use to talk about it in the book, is there is this really strong neoliberal imperative that people are responsible, that it's not a social responsibility, that if there's some kind of obstacle that you're facing, it's up to you to, you know, kind of persevere and and sort your own stuff out. And that's really problematic, because a lot of the conditions which people experience uh, and the harmful conditions people experience have their roots in.
0: Social problems, not personal problems. Mm. Now, Shania Twain is someone who Australians would be familiar with, mm-hmm. familiar with through with their mm-hmm. popular her popular music, and she was one of the chosen case studies, if I can use yeah. it, say it that way. What was particularly mm-hmm. interesting about her self presentation in her writing?
2: She's a really great case study because what her book. Uh, is an example of, is a total rebranding strategy, right? She publishes her text right at this critical moment where she is rebranding herself. And so you see how a memoir can be used to do that because she had kind of withdrawn from the limelight and had always been a fairly private person. Uh, But what you see with the new text is a new public image, a new persona being pushed forward. And that this persona is even given... An alternate name, an identity. She calls She talks about herself as Eileen uh, in the book. Now, Eileen is her actual the name that she was born with. But Shania is the name she uh, adopted as her stage name. So she talks about Eileen as this hometown girl from this rural part of Canada, and that it's there that she, her real self is kind of formed. This person who is more willing to share and to be open. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, the the memoir was just this whole part of a a really interesting rebranding strategy, but also a much more intimate and open and um, much more disclosure of her private life, which you saw um, more of in her television interviews and her people magazine covers. And my theory at the time when the memoir came out is, I bet next time she releases an album, I bet her new music is going to have a much more... Autobiographical. Then there'll be invitations for us to read it autobiographically because she has created this whole new persona to kind of relaunch herself. And I think, in some respects, that that guess or that um, that anticipation that that kind of panned out in the end. I think her music. She does encourage us to read her music a little bit more autobiographically than it than it used to, than she used
0: to. Another person that Australians will be familiar with is Celine Dion. What What's interesting about her her autobiography, uh, briefly, and and how does it differ from Shania's Shania Twain's? I think Celine Dion. Uh
2: and her memoir is a really great example of a consistency of brand. Now, I can only speak to the English language version of her memoir, not the French language version, which was the original one. But there is a real consistency of like who she is and her brand across the text and across her images, and even across her music. So, in her memoir, you see you see the kind of language that in the mouth of another. For some, it would seem really disingenuous, would seem really fake or false or, or, or quite silly. But in the most of Celine Dion, it fits totally in with her brand of dreams and love and ambitions and hope and weeping with joy. It all fits.
0: What about Margaret Trudeau? You, you mentioned her earlier. How did her persona develop through her, her writing?
2: So Margaret Trudeau wrote three memoirs and then an advice book. And the first memoir came out in 79. And that was really at the cusp of a time where she needed to control her image, because she had just left the Prime Minister of Canada, and she left her children with him. And she was, you know, trying to move into the world and get work and be her own woman. And so you see in that book, 1979, lots of, you know, second wave feminist language about being strong and carving out your own path and finding fulfillment as a working Woman, but also as a mom. And you see in each one of her memoirs that she often tells the same stories again and again and again, but her angle on those stories will change. And so with her books, I think you see a lot more of a woman changing and looking back and telling stories in a new way to accommodate what she thinks is the reason why she did certain things at that time.
0: One of the things that you did mention in your book was that. Celebrities, like the ones you're talking about, have migrated online and uh, they're doing much more on digital platforms. Tell us a little bit about some of the trends that you've picked up there and and what what would you say is a, is one of the one or two of the dominant trends of of, of that transition onto digital platforms I think
2: what we're seeing with the movement, uh, you know, when celebrities are using social media is because social media really encourages you to be visual, we're seeing so many more photos than we ever really did before, especially with the memoir, which only has a certain number of photos in it, right? But with Instagram or Facebook, there is, you know, they can be really visual mediums, and so we're seeing a lot more of uh, images personal images, but also professional ones um, being used as a way to kind of keep themselves out there. And it's, but it's different from the, the memoir as a book because these are fragments, right? Social media is built on these little fragments that aren't really connected together. And they're great little fun snapshots that keep you in touch with a celebrity. But at the end of the day, my, my theory is that that won't actually impact the sales of memoirs in a negative way. I think people will stay in touch with or be you know, connected with these celebrities. And so for memoirs to come out, this, that all they've had are fragments. The memoir might offer them the bigger, broader narrative. And so I think social media and memoir production, like conventional memoir production, can pretty much go hand in hand. Like it's a great publicity tool.
0: That was Katja Lee, who researches and teaches communication and media studies at the University of Western Australia. Her new book is entitled Limelight, Canadian Women and the Rise of Celebrity Autobiography. It's published by Wilfrid Laurier University Press. And her article in the conversation that started our interview is Hide Self, One Tip on Video Conferencing, Good Enough for Matthew McConaughey. All the details and the links will be put on the Communication Mixdown website, along with a podcast of this show. That's all from us this week. And don't forget, all through June, the 3CR Station Appeal. Due to the coronavirus restrictions, we can't run our annual radiophone fundraiser. We can't have broadcasters at the station, and we can't staff the phones to take your donations. Instead, we're holding a station appeal and asking listeners to make their donations online. So head to the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au, and click through to donate. 3CR and Communication Mixed Down depend on your generous support. Let's go out with one of those Canadian celebrities we were discussing earlier. Here's Shania Twain.
1: Uh-huh, yeah, yeah. I've known a few guys who thought they were pretty smart, but you've got being right. Down to an art You think you're a genius You drive me up the wall You're regular, original Know it all Oh, You think you're special Oh, you think you're something else Okay, so you're a rocket scientist That don't impress me much So you got the brains have you Got the touch Don't get me wrong, yeah I think you're all right, but that won't keep me warm in the middle of the night. That don't impress me much. Uh huh, yeah, yeah. I never knew a guy who carried a mirror in his pocket and a comb up his sleeve just in case. It should fall out of place Oh, well, you think you're special Oh, well, you think you're something else Okay, so you're Brad Pitt That don't impress me much So you yeah, got the looks, but have you got the touch? Now don't get me wrong, yeah, I think you're alright But that's Don't impress me much Yeah You're one of those guys Who likes a shines machine Baby, take off my shoes Before you let me get in I can't believe you kiss your car at night Now come, come on, baby, on, baby, tell me must be choking right oh well, you think it's something special oh well, you think it's something else okay so you got a car that don't impress me much so yeah got the moves behind you got the touch Press me.